0: Welcome to EmergencyMedicineCases.com. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. In this episode number 25 on pediatric and adult syncope, we have with us Dr. Eric Latovsky and Dr. Anna Jarvis. Dr. Lutofsky is an emergency physician at the Credit Valley Hospital in Mississauga, Ontario, where he is the chief of the emergency department. He's the Director of the Division of Emergency Medicine in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Toronto, where he's a full professor in the Faculty of Medicine. Dr. Anna Jarvis was an emergency physician at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto from 1997 to 2010. She's a full professor at the University of Toronto and the Associate Dean of the Office of Health Professions Student Affairs. She also created, implemented and supervised the Department of Pediatrics Clinical Fellowship Program in Pediatric Emergency Medicine for
1: 13 years.
0: Before we get into the episode, I have a very important announcement about CME credits or in Canada the main pro credits. If you're a CCFP or a CCFPEM, that's the vast majority of docs in Canada who practice emergency medicine, starting in January 2013, all main pro participants will be required to report a minimum of 25 credits per year during their five-year main pro cycle. Now, this is the important part. The annual minimum may be comprised of any combination of main pro M1, main pro M2, or main pro C credits. So whereas before you had to claim a certain amount of each, now you can do any combination of the above as long as you have 25 credits per year. So what does that mean in terms of emergency medicine cases? Well, we have about 25 hours per year of emergency medicine cases podcasts. So if you listen to your emergency medicine cases podcasts, you can claim your entire requirement of the year by just listening to emergency medicine cases and claiming those credits as M1 credits. Now, if you're American and a member of the AAFP, you can claim your M1 credits as AAFP prescribed credit. Just remember that when reporting to the AFP, the Main Pro 1 credits earned must be reported as Main Pro M1 credits, not as AAFP prescribed credit. So without further ado, let's get into talking about syncope. Syncope is a symptom, it's not a disease. It has a huge differential diagnosis. And by definition, always involves a sudden decrease or brief cessation of cerebral blood flow, which leads to the loss of postural tone and spontaneous recovery. When faced with a patient who presents with syncope, there's three key questions that we need to answer in the emergency department. One, is it true syncope or is it another type of event like a seizure, for example? Two, what's the underlying cause and is the underlying cause a life-threatening one? And three... Is the patient at high risk for cardiovascular events or death in the near future? These questions may appear to be simple on the surface, but as you'll see, they require the keen eyes and ears of an astute ED doc, the likes of Dr. Latovsky and Dr. Jarvis. While most patients we see in the ED with syncope have benign causes, there's many lethal causes that we need to be on the lookout for. The four big ones that I always consider first, because they're the most life-threatening and at the same time can be challenging to diagnose, are cardiac syncope, which includes dysrhythmias, structural heart disease, and ischemia; blood loss from things like ruptured AAA, GI bleeds, ruptured ectopic, or ruptured spleen; PE, and subarachnoid hemorrhage. While at least one third of the time we can't come up with a diagnosis by the end of the patient's emergency stay. We often end up over-evaluating these patients with low yield because syncope can be potentially lethal and the differential diagnosis is broad. There's a ton of variability in the assessment and workup of syncope in the emergency department, mostly because there's no good evidence-based consensus on the best approach. But fear not, my EM cases listeners. In this episode, with the help of Dr. Eric Litovsky and Anna Jarvis, having the combined clinical experience of more than 70 years will provide you with the tools you need when facing even the most challenging syncope cases in your practice. Welcome, Dr. Jarvis.
2: Lovely to be here again.
0: And welcome, Dr. Litovsky.
1: Nice to be here.
0: Great. Let's jump right into our first case then. The first case is that of a 48-year-old man with Down syndrome and a history of seizure disorder, as well as a history of low blood pressure. He presents to your ED... With his fourth episode of syncope over the last five weeks, apparently he had gotten up to go to the bathroom earlier that morning and his caregiver heard a thud, ran to the bathroom and found the man unresponsive for approximately three minutes. There was no tonic-clonic activity witnessed, no urinary incontinence and no evidence of tongue biting. It took him just a few minutes to come to and he returned to his baseline level of awareness quickly. He denied a prodrome of lightheadedness, shortness of breath, chest pain, palpitations, or headache. He was on gabapentin and tegretol for his seizures. There was no family history of sudden death or syncope. On exam, his vitals showed a blood pressure of 90 over 60 and a heart rate of 58, with no significant orthostatic changes. His neurologic, cardiac, and respiratory exams were unremarkable. There were no signs of trauma. An ECG showed sinus bradycardia at 55 beats per minute. The patient was discharged from hospital with arrangements made for a Holter monitor, which showed a variability in heart rate from 32 to 80 with frequent three-second pauses. A diagnosis of sick sinus syndrome was made, and the patient was referred for consideration of a pacemaker. Dr. Jarvis, before we get into talking about syncope itself, We need to be able to distinguish it from other causes of sudden loss of consciousness, like seizure, for example. Can you go through for us how you differentiate a seizure from syncope in the emergency department?
2: This is often difficult. Although syncope is common, and up to 25% of all human beings before the age of 18 will have at least one episode syncope. When we look at the overall differential of that group, 80%, and in some series in primary care offices higher, there is literally no underlying pathology. So it is in that up to 20% we have to look for another cause. Main thing is the history And this is what is difficult if you do not have astute observers of the event. The history must be that there was some form of prodrome. And yes, I know you get prodrome in seizures, but that's an aura. It's a pattern that repeats itself. In syncope, there's lightheadedness or feeling of heat or cold or darkness, or ringing in the ears. You want to really try and tease it out. Younger children, don't put words in their mouth. Sometimes you can get them to draw a picture. And if they consistently put, like, lots of dots of colors, maybe maybe they have migraine, right? That's maybe their aura for a seizure, but you can get the history out of them. So the history is one that you have this pattern of they know they're going to faint and then they're unconscious. It is extremely unusual in my experience for the syncope in kids to last less than a minute. You will get histories that it goes on for several minutes and there were multiple events. Be careful. That's when a helpful soul tries to get them to sit up quickly. That's why their pressure drops again. There has to be a prodrome that they really feel something coming on. They lose consciousness and tone and tone. The vast majority of children with syncope are hypotonic. They lose tone. They go right down, collapse, and it's very, very brief. And within five minutes, I would say the vast, vast majority are absolutely at their normal mental status and communication skills. Don't get them upright too quickly. It's advised they lie down 10 minutes. The motor seizures may be subtler. So was there flicking of the eyelids? Was there minor movements? Was there rhythmic beating of the feet? Especially in younger children, it may not be the classical tonic-clonic convulsion.
1: Okay. Yes, I agree with Anna. It's often very difficult. It's often a challenge differentiating syncope versus seizures. With seizures, adults with seizures are more likely to bite their tongue than people with Syncope. Uh, they often have a longer postictal period as opposed to people with syncope. Patients with syncope tend to regain consciousness much quicker than patients with seizure. It's also difficult because patients with syncope can also have some kind of twitching too. And just because you twitch a little bit doesn't mean you're having a seizure. Just because of the hyperperfusion of the brain, you can have twitching, which sometimes it gets confused with seizure-like activity. So that makes it, you know, hard to differentiate syncope sometimes. And it's also important to remember that both seizures and syncopal events can have urinary incontinence. So just because someone's incontinent urine does not mean it's a true seizure, you can become incontinent with a syncopal episode.
0: So what do we need to know about seizures versus syncope? Seizures are the probable cause of about 10% of apparent syncopal episodes, so it can be confusing. They can mimic syncope when the seizure is atypical and not associated with ongoing tonic-clonic movements or the seizure is not observed. It's more likely to be a seizure... If there's evidence of soft tissue injury at multiple sites, because when you have tonic-clonic activity, you can hit multiple areas and get injured. Whereas when you have a syncopal episode, it's usually only one area that gets injured. It's more likely to be a seizure if there was a tonic phase before the onset of rhythmic activity. If there was head deviation or unusual posturing during the episode... And generally speaking, if the event lasts more than four or five minutes, it's unlikely to be syncope, and you should search for other causes of loss of consciousness like seizure. Remember that both seizures and syncope can cause urinary incontinence, so that doesn't really help us distinguish them. There was a scoring system that helped to predict the diagnosis of syncope versus seizure in 2002 out of the Journal of the American College of Cardiology. And they assigned points to certain historical features. So for example, tongue biting got two points. A feeling of deja vu got one point. Associated emotional stress got one point. Head turning during the event got one point. Unresponsiveness or unusual posture or limb movements or amnesia got another point. Confusion after the event or a post-ictal state got one point and two points were taken away if you had syncopal-type symptoms like lightheaded spells or sweating before the event, and the event was associated with a prolonged sitting or standing. A total point score of one or greater suggested a seizure, and if the score was less than one, the likelihood was that it was syncope. Uh, This scoring system correctly diagnosed 94% of patients and was 94% sensitive and 94% specific in identifying seizures. We'll have this in the written summary for you to review. What about the physical exam in terms of distinguishing seizure versus syncope? Well, bradycardia and hypotension point to syncope as the etiology of the loss of consciousness. And of course, any focal neurologic deficit would be more consistent with a seizure than with syncope. And how about lab tests? Well, it is well known that both lactate levels and CK levels do increase after a seizure. And one study comparing venous lactate levels in patients with generalized seizure activity and patients with syncope found that a lactate level of greater than 2.5 was 97% specific for a generalized seizure. Another study showed that an elevated CK level measured three hours after the loss of consciousness had a sensitivity of 80% and a specificity of 94% for diagnosing a seizure. So these can be sometimes helpful as well. Next, Dr. Jarvis is going to comment on our case of the Down syndrome patient and talk about how Down syndrome relates with syncope.
2: Well, you see, as soon as you tell me that someone is a Down syndrome, um, my alarm bells have gone off. Because they have some physical reasons to have a non benign syncope. First, many of them have unstable cervical spines, right? And this is a big controversy as to how much investigation to do before allowing young children with Down syndrome to participate in regular childhood sports, but they have a much higher incidence of anomalies of both the vertebrae, right, and other things which might predispose them to have a a serious reason for mm, having yeah. lost consciousness
0: the so, one, that I'm, the one the one that I, I'm aware of is the C1 c2 absolutely the absolutely
2: there. but there are many other anomalies mm-hmm. described in the radiological literature about the skeletal anomalies of Down syndrome children. So that's one. Secondly, what's the state of the heart? I noticed you didn't say that there was no cardiac disease here because was this a corrected congenital heart disease? They tend to get Six sinus syndrome, right, which can be immediately after the surgery or at any time. Third, the, the Down syndrome child, the heart ages faster and you may see atherosclerosis and myocardial infarctions at a relatively young age, even if there's no structural cardiac problem. So the child with Downs has many other reasons, an endocrinological problem, hypo thyroidism, Addison's, anything, because there might be an electrolyte problem going on here.
0: Once you're convinced from the history that it was a true syncopal attack, what's your general approach to, to syncope? How do you think about it? Do you have a general differential diagnosis, general categories that you think about? What's your general approach?
1: So, you know, when I when I see a patient with syncope, this my challenge in the emergency department is to figure out whether it's a cardiac event or non cardiac event. Because if you look at uh, one year mortality statistics, the one year mortality of patients who have a cardiac cause of syncope is upwards to twenty five percent, while the one year mortality of patients with a non cardiac cause of syncope is the average of two, three, four percent. So, it's really important to figure out whether this is a cardiac event or non cardiac event realizing that even if it's a non cardiac event causing the syncope you can still have a significant injury you can fall down and hit your head and you can get a subdural hematoma or you know you know a break mandible or whatever you can still have serious injuries but in terms of the etiology of the syncope your job is a sort of is this cardiac or non cardiac non cardiac you think of things like reflex mediated or neurally mediated and, and altogether your chance of making a firm diagnosis in the emergency department if you're lucky, is 30, 40, 50 percent. 50 percent of the time, you'll never actually figure out a cause of syncope. You'll assume it was vasovagal, and you'll assume it's reflex mediated. So my approach in the emergency department, obviously, as Anna suggests, it's all in the history, right? Uh, family history is key. Family history of syncope, family history of seizures, family history of any potential dysrhythmias, for example, family history of Brugada syndrome. I mean, the family history is key. Number two. What was the patient doing at the time? Was he in the washroom? Uh, was he shaving? Was he urinating, defecating? You need to know what the, what the patient was doing when they had the secret blood event. Was the patient exercising? So the history of what the patient was doing was critical. Uh, a lot of people pass out in the washroom. That's because people do a lot of things in washrooms, right? And you have to remember that there are baroreceptors In the pharynx, there's baroreceptors in the urethra. There's baroreceptors in the anal canal. And what happens is that you gargle or you urinate and you you stimulate these these baroreceptors, which then precipitate a precipitous drop in blood pressure or precipitous bradycardia to cause a syncopal event. So syncope in washrooms is very common just for that, you know, the reflex mediated cause of syncope. So again, the family history, What was the patient doing at the time? And then whether there was a prodrome. You know, there's two ways that people pass out. One is the way that Marilyn Monroe would pass out. You know, she kind of swoons to the ground. She feels a little lightheaded, a little nauseated. She feels a little flushed. feels a little warm. And then she passes out. Or is it a sudden collapse without any warning at all? You're walking along the street and then you're on the ground. So the history is key. Because if you have a long prodrome, it suggests some other cause besides cardiac syncope. If you have a sudden collapse without any warning you're more likely to think about cardiac cause of syncope even though there are some other causes of syncope which also produce no prodrome like micturition syncope and orthostatic syncope but if there's no prodrome at all you certainly have to worry about cardiac causes so again what's the family history what was the patient doing and whether there's any prodrome, how long or short the prodrome was. Those are the, some of the key historical features of my approach to syncope.
0: Right. So we'll get into detail about all those things as we progress through this podcast. So as you mentioned, cardiac is is key. The other types of syncope you mentioned: reflex mediated syncope, you mentioned orthostatic syncope, and then there's cerebrovascular syncope. You'd mentioned reflex mediated or neurally mediated syncope. There's different kinds of syncope within this category. There's vasovagal syncope, situational syncope, and carotid sinus syncope, all of which you were alluding to in your comments there. Can you just go through what these different kinds of syncope are and how they present?
1: Uh, So orthostatic syncope is, is, is common in the elderly, common in diabetics who have reduced autonomic tone, for example, who have autonomic dysfunction. You can expect in patients who are anemic for whatever reason, upper GI bleed, patients who are grossly dehydrated for whatever reason, gastroenteritis, on diuretics, whatever. So these are patients who may or may have low blood pressure, but uh, on standing will have a precipitous drop in blood pressure, which causes them to become acutely symptomatic. Uh, again, it's common in the elderly, common in diabetics, and co- common in patients who are volume depleted. So... It is important to take orthostatic vitals in the in the emergency department. Remembering that just because someone has an orthostatic drop doesn't mean that that necessarily is the cause of the syncope. I mean, if you take orthostatic blood vitals on all your elderly patients over 75, probably 30, 40, 50% of those patients will have some kind of orthostatic drop of greater than 10 millimeters per mercury. So just because they have your elderly patient has an orthostatic drop doesn't necessarily mean that that's what's precipitated the syncopal episode. But certainly in the emergency department, if you do a static vital signs and it reproduces their syncopal or pre symptoms, certainly you have to go, it leads you to a diagnosis. And then with the reflex mediated, so these, these situations are typically in the washroom. Micturition syncope, defecation syncope, uh, patients who pass out while they're brushing their teeth, they're gargling. I, again, what happens is that the baroreceptors and the mucosa get stimulated. You get a profound drop in blood pressure or pulse, and you get a syncopal episode, and, and, and often without warning. Micturition syncope often uh, has no program at all. And then carotid sinus hypersensitivity. Uh, not a real common event. I don't see it very often. I haven't seen it very often in in, in over 30 years of practice, but uh, it's characterized the patients, again, shaving, you wear a tight collar, you turn your neck suddenly, and it can stimulate receptors in the neck that can cause, again, hypotension or profound bradycardia causing a syncopal episode.
0: And the the last category of syncope that I had mentioned was CNS causes of syncope, cerebrovascular syncope. Can you explain first how common or uncommon these true CNS causes of syncope are, and which causes we should be on the lookout for.
1: Well, in my clinical experience, CNS causes, true CNS causes of pure syncope alone, without any symptoms or signs, with any other symptoms or signs, besides the syncope is actually quite rare. Syncope in TIAs is actually quite rare by itself. Stroke, quite rare. You can get syncope in subclavian steel syndrome, which is a syndrome where you get a, a stenosis in the proximal part of the subclavian artery so that when someone's exercising vigorously with the ipsilateral arm, you get what's called you get a steel from the, from the ipsilateral vertebral artery coming down where it's a retrograde flow down the vertebral artery to help uh, increased blood supply to that arm, and you can get a neurological event. Uh, it's extraordinarily rare. In 32 years, I think maybe you've seen once or twice cases of subclavian steel syndrome. It's very rare. And patients rarely present to the emergency department uh, with subclavian steel syndromes. So, uh, you know, it's not a real common event. It's actually quite a rare event by itself, uh, secondary to a, a cerebrovascular etiology.
0: So, Dr. Lutofsky, you had mentioned all the key parts of uh, the history and how important the history is in patients who present with syncope. But Dr. Jarvis, uh, could you tell us about what you look for in the history in children with syncopal episodes?
2: Sure. Only 2 to 6% of syncope in childhood is a presentation of a cardiac problem. But that is the critical group to identify. Obviously, we don't want to be doing intensive, invasive yeah, and expensive investigations on everyone else if it's only 2 to 6%. But these are the ones we want to pick up. So on the history, we go even further, quite apart from I endorse everything Eric said. What were they doing? What was their body position? You have to get the parents away and find out if the kids have recently smoked their first joint of marijuana or tried something at a party. The parents may be unaware. Then in the family history, we have to push for early deaths. Now, when you say early deaths, oftentimes the family just say, oh, Uncle Joe died while swimming a race. They don't realize that Uncle Joe was a prize swimmer and this was shallow water. And he should not have died. So you need to actually ask the questions, not just sudden deaths, but has anyone died while swimming or exercising? Pacemaker insertion in people who have not had heart attacks. That's another one. Sudden deaths, SIDS. It's amazing to us how many times when there is a child, an infant, who dies of SIDS, that the grand, That's the first time the parents know they had a sibling who died of SIDS as well. Because it's something that's buried, it's not discussed. So we push even harder. Deafness, anyone needing a hearing aid before 60 to try and unearth if there could be a cardiac cause of the syncope. Some of the long QT syndromes, there is an association with deafness. In others, there are associations with other dysmorphic features. So are there people in the family with syndactyly, woolly hair, other things? And again, uh, the family may just accept that some people in the family have a certain physiognomy. They look a certain way. Whereas, guess what? It could be characteristic of an association with a dysrhythmic pattern. I'm looking through you. Where did you go? I thought I knew you. What did I know? You don't look different, but you have changed. I'm looking through you. You're not the same.
0: Sometimes a challenge that I have is a patient who presents with a breath holding spell whether to be worried about the patient or not. Can you just go through for us what a breath-holding spell is and what some of the red flags you look for in patients who present with breath-holding spells that would require further workup or admission? for?
2: Certainly. no. occasionally we end up saying someone under a year has a breath-holding spell. But I caution people that if... An infant is losing consciousness. That for me is a big red flag that that child needs some kind of investigation, including a complete assessment that mom's not depressed and there's no element of smothering a troublesome child here. In other words, uh, Munchausen's, right, or child maltreatment. So that put aside, the typical child who has breath-holding spells, is the person who is in the toddler age group who is trying to achieve autonomy. And they are told, no, you can't have that. A typical one is at the checkout point where they have all these temptations for children sitting in shopping carts, and the child wants candy or something, and the mother takes it away and puts it back. Uh, Some children scream and go blue in the face and then lose consciousness. Other children just hold their breath. They don't cry. They go deathly pale, then limp, and they're unconscious. In either case, there may be a couple myotonic jerks right? So this is not rhythmic contractions. It's not bilateral. It's stiffening. That occurs as they lose consciousness. When they come around, they're back to normal in no time flat. That's a typical breath holding. Sometimes the parents don't see what the stimulus was because a child could be playing with blocks. They build a little tower, The tower falls down, the kid gets upset and holds their breath and all the parent knows is they find the child pale, flat on the ground next to the bricks. On occasion when we're not sure, we have brought them into hospital as a day patient and, you know, have them playing with someone and then take something from them and provoke a cry right? Or a spell. And that says it all for us. Mm
0: -hmm. So
2: those are the typical breath holding. They should grow out of it by the time they are five.
0: Not so infrequently. I see kids who fall off their tricycle with a minor trauma. Mom picks them up and they go limp for a few seconds.
2: Although breath holding from the frustration of the hurt and the fall is the commonest cause, Children do occasionally have AVMs, right? <laughs> Bleeding in their head, a slow leak, right? That minor trauma caused. And so we absolutely, with the new evidence on higher incidence of cancer being possible after head CTs in young kids. Do not wish to over-investigate these children, but it is so important to try and ascertain from the family um, the child's temperament. Do they get frustrated? Has it happened before? And to be absolutely certain in your mind that this was minor trauma. Most of the time, after an exhaustive history and pristine head-to-toe, like a fellowship examination of the CNS, instructions of the family, you can be confident without doing any further investigations.
0: Okay. And Dr. Jarvis, how does the frequency or pattern of syncope episodes help in your assessment? In the case we presented of the uh, patient with Down syndrome, he had a few episodes of syncope over the preceding five weeks. Mm -hmm. How does does that change what you're thinking about in terms of the cause of syncope? That's a
2: red flag at any age. At any age, if uh, someone uh, happens to have to have blood taken every week and they don't like blood taking, you know, that might be it. But the person who is fainting regularly, again, that's a red flag. The vast majority of benign syncope is not a recurrent decimal.
1: I tend to get concerned if, if I see a 60-year-old with nuance in syncope episodes frequently over just a short period of time, nuance that. That's the kind of patient I'm worried about as opposed to, you know, the 30 or 40 year old who's had a 10 or 15 year history of occasional syncopal episodes. Mm-hmm. So nuance onset frequently in the elderly patient, I'm extremely concerned about.
0: So let's review some of the key historical features when it comes to assessing the patient with syncope. First, you have to look at the situation. Sudden syncope at rest when not upright suggests a cardiac arrhythmia or an atrial myxoma. Sudden syncope on exertion may suggest aortic stenosis or hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy. Syncope that occurs after prolonged standing usually suggests vasovagal syncope, while syncope occurring during or immediately after coughing, laughing, vomiting, swallowing, urination, defecation, combing your hair, or stretching suggests situational syncope. Syncope that occurs when turning the head side to side or shaving with neck compression suggests carotid sinus syncope. And syncope that occurs when exercising the arm suggests subclavian steel syndrome. Lastly, in terms of the situation, syncope that occurs after an emotional upset suggests either vasovagal syncope or prolonged QT syndrome leading to torsad. Next, you need to look at the preceding symptoms. So if the preceding symptoms were a lightheadedness type prodrome with sweating and nausea when upright that has a slow progressive onset, that suggests vasovagal syncope. Preceding palpitations may suggest a cardiac arrhythmia, while preceding or accompanying dyspnea may suggest a pulmonary embolism or cardiac tamponade. Syncope associated with a sudden headache suggests a subarachnoid hemorrhage, while syncope preceded by chest pain may suggest an MI, or again a PE or cardiac tamponade, as well as a dissection or mitral valve prolapse. If the syncope was preceded by back pain, that suggests a dissection of the aorta or a leaking abdominal aortic aneurysm. For the woman of childbearing age, if they present with syncope preceded by belly pain, you need to think about ectopic pregnancy. And don't forget to ask about black stools or melina that would suggest a GI bleed as a cause for the syncope. Lastly, ask about fluid loss like vomiting, diarrhea, or excessive sweating in combination especially with a poor intake which may suggest hypovolemia or orthostatic hypotension. Remember that taking a family history is key. Sudden unexplained death, deafness, congenital heart disease, metabolic disorders, Am I at young age, are all important family history points to ask about. Family history is also important in that up to 90% of kids with vasovagal syncope will have a family history of the same. And finally, any child who has a decreased LOC for whatever reason, you always have to consider non-accidental trauma. So we've talked about the history. Let's move on to the physical exam in particular. Dr. Lutofsky, in general, what do you look for on the physical exam when you're assessing patients who
1: become the syncope? Well, the physical examination all starts with the vital signs. That's what we, They're vital. That's why we call them vital signs, right? It all starts with the vital signs. And you, you got to make sure you look at all the vital signs. And when I say vital signs, the vital signs include all the four big ones, but also O2 saturation and blood sugar, right? You need to have a blood sugar on any patient who has a syncope episode. You don't want to miss something as simple as hypoglycemic event. So first, you've got to look at the the vital signs. You want to see if this patient's febrile. You want to see if the patient's bradycardic or tachycardic. You want to have a good look at the blood pressure. And I I do believe that although we talked about the uh, utility of orthostatic vital signs, the limitations of orthostatic vital signs, I do think that a good set of orthostatic vital signs should be obtained on patients who've had a syncopal episode. You lie them down, do the blood pressure, you sit them up and stand them up, and then a couple of minutes later, you take the blood pressure again. So I think it starts with the vital signs.
0: When it comes to orthostatic vitals, I think it's important to know that they're neither sensitive nor specific as a cause for orthostatic syncope. On the other hand, orthostatic vitals are recommended by most guidelines on syncope. But do remember that the presence of orthostatic hypotension does not rule out other causes of syncope, particularly prolonged QT syndrome. Patients with prolonged QT syndrome often have an orthostatic drop. Dr. Latovsky is now going to continue with his pearls of the physical exam.
1: Second of all, what do they look like? Any obvious injuries, even a benign cause of syncope can produce a serious injury. You can fall down, you hit your head, you get a big laceration, you get an epidural, you get a subdural hematoma, you can crack a tooth, you can break your mandible. I've seen patients who've broken their mandibles after a single episode. So you can have significant injuries, even though the cause of the syncope is benign. Patients who have seizures can dislocate their shoulder. You can get a posterior shoulder dislocation in patients with seizures. So you need to look for other obvious causes, any obvious injuries that you need to address in association with a syncopal episode. And then look at the tongue, obviously, because if there's a, if the tongue was bitten, maybe you're looking at a seizure and not a true syncopal episode. And then if there's no other obvious injuries, after the vital signs, you want to do a good cardiac examination. You want to do a good neurological examination. And then you might want to do a rectal examination, depending on the situation. Now, when I say cardiac examination, I mean, looking at the neck veins, looking for distended neck veins, which could be a, you know, a sign that we see in cardiac tamponade or massive pulmonary embolism. And you want to have a good listen to the heart sounds because you don't want to miss a cardiac murmur in the emergency department patients with up episodes. If a patient has aortic stenosis and they are now having a new syncope episode, it's predictor of short-term mortality. So you don't want to miss a heart murmur in patients with syncope. And our emergency departments are very noisy atmospheres. They're very noisy environments. So these patients should be taken into a place where you can have a good cardiac examination. You need to tell everyone around you to be quiet. You need to have a good listen to, to the heart for heart sounds, for listen for, for murmurs.
0: So listening for murmurs in your patient with syncope are important for two reasons. One is an outflow murmur that increases with Valsalva is hokum until proven otherwise. And secondly, critical aortic stenosis, which if it presents with syncope, has a very, very poor prognosis, can sometimes be picked up by just hearing that new systolic murmur.
1: Then the neurological examination should be thorough. And then you may want to do a rectal examination looking for melina blood in patients who have an orthostatic drop. So those are the fundamentals of the physical examination.
0: Okay. And in terms of doing a rectal exam and checking for occult blood, there is some literature out there that says you should do a rectal exam and look for occult blood for every patient in the emergency room who presents with syncope. What's your opinion? Who should we be doing rectals and and uh, checking for occult blood for? Well,
1: well, I don't do rectals on every patient with a single So The 9 year old female who I'm convinced by history alone has had a vasovagal event, I will not bother with rectal examination. You know, especially in kids. Uh, in adults, again, even in adults, if I'm completely convinced that it's. Uh, Uh, not secondary GI GI bleed. If it's a vasovagal or if it's a a situational event, for example, I won't necessarily do a rectal examination. However, if the patient's tachycardic, if the patient's hypotensive, if the patient has an orthostatic drop, uh, then I will. Obviously, if the patient is at all anemic, I'll go ahead and do a rectal examination looking for melanoma stools. But the simple answer to your question is no, I don't do a rectal examination on every single patient with syncope.
2: In addition to what Eric is saying, in pediatrics, we do like examining in an active mode and really trying to decide if there are any soft dysmorphic features like some syndactyly or any other features that might suggest a subtle syndrome. Uh, partial penetrance or something, because that would push us to the cardiac side. We do note what is the pubertal stage, which in some cases in these days in girls is very young, below 10 years of age, because we would be interested in uh, ruling out pregnancy uh, as uh, ectopic and uh, pregnancy-related fainting does occur and certainly the incidence of hypostatic uh, syncope is higher in pregnancy and you need to be sure that it's just a vascular uh, symptom and nothing more serious and any subtle signs of child abuse. right? So we are making a note of bruises remember, Um, if you don't cruise you don't bruise children are entitled, especially in summertime, to have black and blue shins, but they should not be on the buttocks or the areas. And we're looking for signs that hair has been pulled, ears have been pulled, right? Impatiger is very common in the summer with bug bites. However, anything that could be a cigarette burn. So just keep active observation. By right. just a few other things in addition to Eric's careful description.
0: Absolutely, one of the things we had mentioned before as a cause for syncope was uh, carotid sinus sensitivity, and that brings up in the physical exam the value of doing a carotid sinus massage. Dr. Litovsky, could you please review for us how to do carotid sinus massage and when you would do it?
1: Well, the whole objective of doing a CSM in the emergency department is to see if patients are have you know hypersensitive carotid sinus, and if by chance uh, that may be the cause of syncope, I have to tell you that I don't do CSM in the emergency department. Uh, I think if you took all, if you took 170 year old males and did CSM on them, you're going to precipitate a uh, you know a short episode of uh, you know a systole, you know a short bradycardic or a episode. So does that necessarily mean that the event was caused by any uh, a CSM hypersensitivity? I, I don't think so. And I think it's potentially dangerous as well. So I personally don't do CSM on patients looking for it in the elderly patients looking for CSM hypersensitivity as an etiology for syncope. I know there are some guidelines that recommend it. I don't think those guidelines are, are, are specific for emergency medicine. I think they are more suggestions for cardiologists who are evaluating the cause of syncope NYD you're so referring to the, the European guidelines? Uh, exactly. Those aren't emergency medicine-specific guidelines.
2: If you're going to induce a possible asystolic moment, uh, symptomatic bradycardia, you have to be prepared that you would have pacer pads on, uh, your defibrillator at the bedside, and these things. So again, uh, I think that is for more detailed testing in someone you have concerns about.
0: Mm-hmm. In case you want to go by the guidelines, of uh, the European guidelines from 2009, they do recommend it in patients over 40. But in case you decide that you do want to do a carotid sinus massage, despite what Dr. Latofsky and, mm-hmm. and Dr. Jarvis are saying, it's very important that it should be avoided in patients with any previous TIA or stroke within the past three months, and in patients with any carotid brewery, except if carotid dolper studies have excluded significant stenosis.
1: Yeah. So, so I just don't understand the rationale. So you, 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 have somebody lying down on a stretcher, you do some CSM massage and you produce a short asystolic period. So, so then what? So does that mean that was the cause co- etiology of the patient's Singapore episode? Right. You, you are going to produce a short asystolic people in normal people.
0: It's similar to the orthostatic drop.
1: Correct. Right. Just because, you produce, just because you have a bit of an orthostatic drop, does that mean the patient's level is was secondary to orthostasis? Not necessarily. You've got to right. be very cautious. I would not do CSM in the emergency department looking for CSM hypersensitivity.
2: We absolutely agree on that. I mean, think about it. When you have uh, someone presenting with supraventricular tachycardia, uh, carotid massage is a treatment to slow the heart. So, uh, and, and then you're prepared correct? with pads on and ready to go. Correct.
1: Correct. Correct. Okay. I mean, maybe Anna and I are old fashioned and maybe we are, br- <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'm proud it's of that. It's safe. We're I'm proud,
2: safe. I'm proud of that. We don't kill people. Right, Eric?
1: Right.
0: <laughs> Next, we're going to talk about ancillary testing for syncope and the importance of a good history and physical examination.
1: What's the value of ancillary testing in the emergency department on top of history and physical examination? If you're going to make a diagnosis of the etiology of the single episode, it's going to be because of the history and physical examination. Ancillary testing is rarely going to give you additional information. Sometimes the ECG gives you a little bit of information. Occasionally and rarely a lab test will help you. You'll get a positive beta as a surprise or occasionally you'll get a low hemoglobin as a surprise. But if you're going to make a diagnosis of the etiology of syncope in the emergency department, it's almost always because of a detailed history, 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 and a good thorough physical examination.
0: So given the importance of the history and physical, Mm -hmm. and that we know that ancillary testing won't add a lot, the one very important test that we do need to do on pretty much every patient Mm -hmm. who presents with syncope is an ECG. Let's go on to our second case and talk about the importance of the ECG in the context of syncope. So, our second case is that of a 12-year-old boy. A concerned track and field coach accompanies his prized sprinter to the emergency room after this 12-year-old boy passed out at practice. He's otherwise healthy, with no personal or family history of presyncope or syncope. He denies using any illicit or sports-enhancing drugs. While he's running. He suddenly collapsed and was unconscious for about three minutes. His coach felt a pulse during this time. There was no seizure activity, no tongue biting, no urinary incontinence, and no post period. He does not remember feeling dizzy, short of breath, or experiencing chest pain or headache prior to the syncopal episode. On arrival in the emergency department, his vital signs were normal. An ECG showed normal sinus rhythm at 90 beats per minute with very tall QRS complexes in the lateral leads and Q waves in leads 2, 3, and AVF. His neurologic, cardiovascular, and respiratory exams were unremarkable. So let's talk about ECG. I know, Dr. Latofsky, that's one of your favorite subjects.
1: Well, first of all, this 12-year-old boy who has uh, an exertional cause of syncope, First of all, I, I'm worried just because of the history alone. Again, it goes back to the history. A 12-year-old boy who has a syncopal episode during exertion is high-risk to begin with and suggests serious disease to begin with, regardless of the cardiogram. So the most important point to make that even if this 12 year old boy has a normal cardiogram you're still worried and he's still going to have aggressive uh, investigations to make sure he doesn't have cardiomyopathy hypertrophic cardiomyopathy even if he has a normal cardiogram the most important thing to say a normal cardiogram does not rule out serious underlying structural disease
2: anyone who collapses during exercise needs to be investigated
1: so let's discuss the cardiogram in patient syncope. I do think that if, you're going to, if you can only order one test in the emergency department, it's the cardiogram. Blood work rarely is very helpful. CT scans are never helpful. Any, any other fancy tests, not helpful. But the cardiogram can be helpful. So this is what you look for with the cardiogram. First of all, you look at the rate. Is the patient bradycardic or tachycardic, obviously? And then you look at the intervals. In syncope, the ECG is all about intervals. So you look at the PR segment interval. Is there a short PR interval, which may be indicative of bypass tr- tract disease, right? WPW. So look for the PR interval, then look at the QRS interval Any evidence of interventricular delay, right bundle branch block or left bundle branch block. So look at the QRS interval, then look at the QT interval. Is it long or is it short? So the ESCG is all about intervals, the PR segment, the QRS segment, and then the QT interval. Um, obviously, you're going to look for T-wave changes, T-wave elevations, for example, in Brigada syndrome. Not only will you have a bundle branch block, you'll have a wide QRS, but you'll also have SD segment and elevation, which looks like a little mountain or some other abnormal configuration of the T-waves. So the important principles, the important things to look for in a cardiogram are the rate, the intervals, any ST segment deviations, either elevation or or depression, T-wave changes, and again, any presence of Q-waves. And this child who has presence of Q-waves, again, suggests the presence of a cardiomyopathy. So it's very careful to have a good detailed look at the 12-lead electrocardiogram.
2: If a patient of any age has collapsed during exercise, because the initial cardiogram may be normal, I strongly suggest that for the duration of the time the person is in your emergency department, you put them on a monitor. Because, you know, we all have long waits. Let's be honest. If you get the patient, you have your nurses educated, that as soon as they come in, this was exercise-induced That means a monitor. And that way, if they throw off occasional dysrhythmia or something, it will be picked up. Because sometimes these things are intermittent. He was exercising. It might have been during a hot spell. You might want to do some electrolytes, right? That kid could be there for several hours. And uh, by putting him on a monitor, you may pick up something and have less argument with your uh, consultant.
0: So that's a, a general approach to ECGs. Let's, let's dig in a bit deeper. Let's start with the, the brady dysrhythmias. Can you just review what kind of brady dysarrhythmias in particular are likely to cause syncope?
1: Well, first of all, if it's a sinus bradycardia, you, you, can, you can get some symptomatic from a, a sinus bradycardia if a patient's taken an overdose of beta blockers, for example, or calcium channel blockers. Then you can get AV blocks, second degree, usually type 2 or third degree block. Uh, it's rare for winky backs to produce syncopal episodes, but certainly second degree, type 2 or third degree heart block can precipitate syncopal episodes.
0: And then what about the tachydysrhythmias? Which of the tachydysrhythmias are more likely to cause syncope? Which ones are no, usually so, not involved?
1: Yeah, so ventricular tachy- tachydysrhythmias are much more likely to produce syncope than atrial tachydysrhythmias. The exception is patients who have uh, WPW and present with a, uh, a fast atrial fibrillation with a wide complex atrial fibrillation. And those patients present with syncopal episodes as well. Okay, so generally speaking,
0: the SVTs and AFibs, rapid AFibs, they, if they have a syncopal episode, you should be searching for another cause.
1: Rarely. SVTs rarely produce true syncopal episodes. Atrial fibrillations with a, with a standard fast ventricular response of 150 to 80 rarely produce syncopal episodes. But atrial fibrillation with a ventricular rate greater than 200, that you can see in WPW, can produce syncopal episodes. And ventricular tachydysrhythmies can pursue syncopal episodes as well.
0: Okay. You mentioned WPW syndrome. Can you just review for us what the ECG findings are for WPW syndrome and why it's important to
1: pick this up? The uh, pathognomonic ECG findings, if they exist, remembering the ECG can be normal, and you, right? the ECG can be normal. But if you're going to see anything on the cardiogram, you'll see uh, a short PR segment and a delta wave, which is some slurring of the q- initial phase of the QRS complex. Now, you can have, there are other bypass tract diseases that, pre, that are similar to WPW. There's a Launganong-Levine syndrome where you can get a short PR segment, but no delta wave. So those are the pathognomonic features you want to look for. The PR interval and a delta wave, the slurring of the initial phase of the QRS complex.
0: Okay. And both of these syndromes are susceptible to various kinds of supraventricular uh, tachydysrhythmias, including ones that may... Or may not cause syncope.
1: Correct. They, uh, these, these kids who have WbW are at risk for SVT, but they're also at risk for atrial fibrillation with aberrant conduction. And it's important to recognize those patients because the, the, the treatment is very unique in particular, and, and you can cause significant harm if you give those kids the wrong therapy. Mm-hmm. Because what you don't want to do is give them any medication which increases the level of the AV block, thereby you know, stimulating greater and faster conduction down the bypass routes. And you can actually precipitate a ventricular dysrhythmia and it may be very hard to treat those kids out of their ventricular dysrhythmia. So you have to be very, very cautious. So anytime you see an atrial fibrillation with a ventricular rate greater than 200, you should always assume that the patient has bypass tract disease.
2: This is anecdotal, of course, but I've never seen an SVT present with sycopy. It's just not part of the presentation. If they have lost consciousness or have altered level of consciousness, it's because they've been going for so long. They're dealing with poor cardiac output. So you see everything else on the physical exam that really goes with it. I am going to beg you listeners. I am begging you to have a chart of normals on your person or on your whatever little electronic device, external brain you use. Because when we are calculating any of the intervals, I'm here to tell you they vary with age and pubertal state. And therefore, you do need to calculate. We've seen situations where excellent doctors have made an error because they took the reading, the readout on a ECG machine with an automatic readout and interpretation set for adult parameters that have missed subtle changes in the pediatric cardiogram. So I already said, You should not see loss of consciousness under a year of age. I'll tell you, benign syncope under the age of five is very, very uncommon. The peak ages are kind of that, you know, eight to 10-year-old, and then your mid-teen years. So anyone presenting less than five deserves a special look. However... With pediatrics, do not assume, you know, I continue to get asked to review charts where people have misinterpreted tachycardia in an older child as normal because it's a child. I'm begging, have a chart, look at the normals and look at your circumstance, The 12-year-old prize athlete should have a heart rate of 60. So if his heart rate is 90, unless he's really uptight and anxious, and be careful how you say that, something's wrong. You see, we have what we call relative tachycardia and relative bradycardia. Don't look at a 14-year-old who is grossly overweight, has never exercised in their life, who who has a a heart rate of uh, 50 and say, oh, you know, this child is an adult. You be careful. Have your chart and relate the chart measurement to what you're seeing in front of you and hearing as the child's lifestyle.
0: When talking about cardiac causes of syncope, they can be divided into dysrhythmias and structural heart disease. Sometimes they have both. Some of the structural heart diseases that we need to think about in patients with syncope are valvular disease, such as aortic stenosis that Dr. Litovsky mentioned, pericardial tamponade, atrial myxoma is another cause, PE, which we've mentioned, MI, and aortic dissection. In young athletes, the, the most common structural heart disease leading to sudden death is hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. There's also anomalous origin of coronary artery, there's myocarditis and others. The most common of these is hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and it can present with syncope. In fact, it, it often presents with syncope. Can you review for us what hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is and what the ECG findings are?
2: Sure. No, like all things in pediatrics, There's a whole range of presentations and there's a range of pathology. Basically, the child doesn't suddenly develop a large heart with every single muscle affected. So there is a whole range where you start to see presentations, usually in the early teens, depending on pubertal stage, up to early adulthood. Um, You may have cardiomyopathy, and if you never exercise or stress yourself, you may not present till your child collapses. So it can be everything from a physically, anatomically, diffusely affected heart with no symptoms to the child who presents with moderate anatomical change and histological changes. However, when you get increase in muscle size of the upper left ventricle, you get outflow tract obstruction. So when the child exercises and actually needs an increased cardiac output, the child suffers from basically a loss of blood flow and they suddenly collapse. So that's how we see them coming in. I warn you, there may be very, very subtle changes on the cardiogram at the early stages to obvious findings with the usual list of findings. However, anything that suggests left larger QRS complexes, right? left heart strain, left heart increased work, anterior lateral leads, you've got to find a reason for them.
0: Our 12-year-old star sprinter was diagnosed in the emergency department by a very astute emergency physician with syncope likely secondary to hypertrophic cardiomyopathy based on the ECG findings and the presentation. Uh, he went on to have an echo that confirmed the diagnosis. He was started on propanolol 200 milligrams daily and was referred for consideration of surgical myectomy, which is the treatment of choice for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy.
2: You have to convince the patient, and this is difficult with teenagers who so ignore all instructions and their family and the coach, that there will be absolutely no exercising or training of any sort until the consultation takes place. And that's the difficult part.
0: Hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is really quite common. In fact, one of every 500 adults in the general population has it, and it's the most common cause of sudden death during exercise. We'll have examples of all the ECG findings of all the things we talk about on this episode. So please review the written episode ECGs. I just want to review the ECG findings of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, or HOCUM. The most common ECG findings are an increased QRX complex voltage, QRS complex widening, Q-waves, and ST-segment T-wave changes consistent with ventricular hypertrophy. The most specific ECG findings in young patients with HOCUM is the appearance of Q-waves in leads 2, 3, and AVF, and leads 5 and 6, in the early teenage years. Amomatu once described the Q waves of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy as these huge daggers in the precordial leads. We're going to come back to more ECG pearls later. Before we get onto risk stratification, let's talk a little bit about other investigations beside ECG that you might consider doing in the emergency department. So, Dr. Jarvis, what other investigations besides the ECG should we consider for patients with syncope in the ED?
2: We recommend a urine pregnancy test on all menstruating females and a cardiogram, which you must compare against normals. All the vital signs should be compared against the normal chart. Then those who have red flags, history of sudden death, deafness, drowning, early insertion of pacemakers, any other risk factor like that, someone with Down syndrome someone who had Kawasaki as a youngster. We put them on a monitor for the duration of the visit in emergency in case there's an evolving
0: situation. Could you just uh, explain the relationship yes. between Kawasaki's and thinking? And
2: Absolutely. In Kawasaki, which is often missed... In the atypical forms, as the high fever and rash may be mistaken as a viral syndrome of early childhood, the child may have developed coronary aneurysms, even giant aneurysms. And uh, as the child grows, and particularly if you're stressing the heart with exercise, there may be a rupture of one of the aneurysms or there may be an ischemic event leading to a myocardial infarction. And unless you are aware of the history and think about it, you will miss it. Even children who are treated with Aspirin. In the old days, it was only aspirin. We now use gamma globulin and aspirin. There are a small percentage who don't get treated in time who still go on to develop aneurysms despite the fact they were given the correct treatment. It all depends on the stage when they presented. This is definitely one of the causes of myocardial infarctions in youths and young adults to think of.
0: Okay. So getting back to the investigations besides ECG, you had mentioned uh, a beta.
2: Beta. Then we do look at the child carefully. In children under five years of age, I personally send CBC and iron studies, and I'll tell you why. Young children with anemia and iron deficiency have been shown to be more prone to SIDS. We're not quite sure of all the mechanisms, but there is no doubt that there's a relationship. So particularly for the children under five, I send it routinely. I do not send it routinely in older children, Unless there is some indication of blood loss, heavy periods, or something else that would trigger my alarm. Likewise, I take a look at the child and see if they look like they could be an eating disorder. They look malnourished. They look underweight for height, any sign of biting of nails or self-injury. And I strongly recommend electrolytes, but not just electrolytes. You need to look at your calcium and your magnesium level also, because low Calciums and magnesiums can lead to cardiac dysrhythmias. So that's something to consider. There's nothing routine other than the pregnancy test and the ECG. These other tests are all dependent on my suspicions clinically.
1: Blood work in general rarely gives you a diagnosis that you have not picked up on the history and physical examination. It rarely has useful information. Do I do blood work? Yeah, as Anna suggests, I'll do a beta ECG in young females. I'll do a hemoglobin if the patient's tachycardic or if there's an orthostatic drop. I'll do electrolytes if the patient is at risk for electrolyte abnormalities. You're looking for potassium, magnesium, and calcium. But overall, the utility of blood work in evaluation of syncope is minimal, actually.
2: And this is presuming that all of you have followed Eric's advice and done the start blood glucose as a vital sign at the beginning. I tell you I've been fooled a couple of times in people who have fasted for long periods of just been eating minimally and have been into a heavy contact exercise sport. And that is they've fainted. They've had enough of a catecholamine response that their initial glucose was normal. However, uh, an hour later, it had dropped again. But you know, you don't need a v-puncture for that. You can do a finger stick acu-check. But I just want to remind you, glucose is paramount here.
0: Great. So far, what we haven't uh, mentioned in terms of blood work is the troponin. Dr. Latofsky, it seems where I work and just about everywhere that a patient with syncope presents to the emergency department, that they get a troponin drawn right at triage sometimes. What's the value of a troponin in the syncope patient? Which patients should have a troponin drawn in your view?
1: We order a lot of troponins on syncope and, and uh, it's probably most of the time it's a waste of time, a waste of money. Should you ever order troponin? I mean, well, we know that troponin rises in, in, in multiple situations besides myocardial infarction. Troponin will also rise in patients who have heart failure. Uh, you may get a troponin in patients from renal failure, patients who are septic. So a, troponin, a high troponin does not necessarily mean that the patient's got a myocardial infarction. And I should say that syncope as the sole presenting symptom manifestation of acute myocardial infarction is pretty rare without an associated chest pain, without associated shortness of breath, just syncope alone without any associated symptoms would be a very, very rare event for acute infarction. infraction. Right? You could probably write it up as a case report, review the literature. So we won't routinely do troponin. We'll do it in the elderly patient if there are other associated symptoms. So if there's shortness of breath, or chest pain, in the elderly patient, then we'll go ahead and do a troponin as well. But we don't do troponins routinely on everybody who has a syncopal episode.
2: In children, we very rarely do them. If there's a history from someone of frequent presyncope, that sometimes people tell you, I've never fainted. But if you push the history a little more, I often ask, do you ever sit out? Do you ever come off the field? Can you really keep up with your friends? Are you running as fast as you would like to? Human beings are marvelous at curtailing activities to uh, maintain a sense of well-being. And uh, if there's a history of presyncope, I'm concerned about maybe an aberrant coronary, which is very, very rare, or, again, that missed Kawasaki, where there may be an ischemic element. But we keep coming back to this history. You don't have the history, you don't send it.
0: The literature concurs with what you said, Dr. Wotowski, about MI being very rare in the absence of other symptoms. Correct. Just in the syncope patient, uh, patient. You know, the, yes. the literature does say that the negative predictive value for MI of a normal ECG in a patient who presents with just syncope is greater than 99 percent right one blood test we we still haven't mentioned as well is something that we we talked about dr Latovsky back in episode number four in congestive heart failure is the bnp so dr Latovsky, the bnp was included in one syncope clinical decision rule called the rose study which we'll talk a little bit about later and it has been predictive of bad outcomes in, in syncope is there a role, in your view, for BNP testing in patients with syncope?
1: No. I mean, you're suggesting that you know a BNP, an elevated BNP, maybe may suggest uh, an etiology of congestive heart failure, which may be indicative of a, a possible you know arrhythmia. Event. So again, I don't think it adds anything to your history and physical examination. So, if the history and physical examination tells you that the patient's got a history of congestive heart failure and has a, and you know the patient's got a bad heart based on previous echos or whatever, that patient is at risk for an arrhythmia. But a BNP is going to offer you absolutely no useful information that you can use practically in the emergency department.
0: Lastly, what about uh, a CAT scan of the head? There are an, in, an inordinate number of patients who present with syncope to the emergency department where the etiology is unclear who end up getting a CAT scan of their head. And we know that it's very low yield. You know, On the other hand, there are some patients that are initially diagnosed with syncope who end up with a final diagnosis of a seizure. And if this is the first time seizure, then some would argue they probably do need a CT head. Which patients with syncope or a syncope-like presentation do you consider doing a CT head for?
1: So if there's any di- question about the diagnosis, if you think there's a good chance the patients have a seizure, then absolutely your patient needs a CT and then later on EEG. But for patients that you're convinced have an, you know a true indication, uh, who have a true syncope, uh, in the absence of a severe headache, in the absence of neurological symptoms, in the absence of neurological signs, I don't think a CT is indicated for evaluation of syncope. Sure, you're going to order a CT if there's a bad headache. Sure, you're going to order a CT if there's neurological symptoms, you know, lateral focal symptoms. But for your majority of, vast majority of your patients with syncope or otherwise asymptomatic and by history and physical don't suggest a neurological catastrophe, CT is not indicated.
2: So, may I say that in children we do even less CTs because a CT is not, I'm going to repeat that, a CT is not indicated if you suspect a, if someone you suspect it was a seizure rather than syncope because there is no evidence anywhere that a brain tumor in a child has ever presented without neurological findings or complaints so if the child has been doing well at school hasn't had headaches isn't behaving differently isn't uh, drinking a ton of water, or you're suspecting a pituitary problem, or you think that the child uh, lost consciousness and fell out of a tree of a monkey bar or something, and you're worried about an intracranial event causing the fall, you should not do a CT of head just for syncope. If you think the child had a seizure, then you need to organize an electroencephalogram. I know this is different to adult teaching, and I personally, unfortunately, know adults who've presented with a seizure and had a massive inoperable brain tumor as the cause. Uh, But in kids, you've got to find something else.
0: Mm -hmm. So just to clarify that, in children, even if you're convinced that it was a seizure and not syncope, for a first-time seizure, afebrile, Unless there's focal neurologic deficit or an obvious neurologic lesion based on the history and physical, that is, CT is not indicated in the emergency department.
2: Absolutely.
1: Okay. And that would contrast with adults. An adult with a new seizure, first-time seizure, we we would get a CT scan. We would get a CT scan.
0: In terms of ancillary testing, the yield of blood tests in detecting the cause of syncope that was not already established on history, physical, and ECG is only about two to three percent, and that detects mostly electrolyte or metabolic abnormalities that cause seizure. In general, blood tests like hemoglobin, electrolytes, troponin, and beta HCG are required only if there's a clinical suspicion of things like occult hemorrhage, arrhythmias, or seizures due to electrolyte or metabolic abnormalities, MI, or ectopic pregnancy. A hematocrit of less than 0.3 is one of the risk factors in the San Francisco syncope rule, but again, it isn't necessary unless there's a clinical suspicion for GI bleed or you get back a surprise low hemoglobin. So we've talked about history, we've talked about physical, we've talked about ECG and other tests we might consider in the emergency department. Let's move on to risk stratification. This is where we end up having to make a lot of decisions and ends up being very difficult sometimes because we have a lot of patients who present with syncope who are not sure about the cause. We don't find anything in the emergency department that would make us particularly worried on the ECG, or on the basic blood work that we've done. So we need to figure out which of these patients can go home, which of them can stay, which ones are we worried about, which ones aren't we worried about. How in general do you risk stratify your patients with syncope in the ED?
1: Well, you know, I think the vast majority of patients present with syncope can go home and don't need admission, particularly if the history and physical history of physical do not suggest that cardiac cause of syncope, they can almost all go home and be followed up by their own primary care physicians, their family physicians, if they need any follow-up at all. So which patients do I refer for admission? Which patients do I refer on to an internist or cardiologist for admission? Because I think there are high risk. So if I suspect someone's had a cardiac cause of syncope, those are the kind of patients I think should be admitted for evaluation and, and investigation. So Criteria that I use are as follows, the elderly with a history of heart failure, history of arrhythmias, and those patients with an abnormal ECG. So those are my four big criteria the age, history of heart failure, history of arrhythmias, and a grossly abnormal ECG. If my patient has those four characteristics, I'm going to refer to the patient because I think that patient has a higher risk of having a cardiac event, especially in the setting of a history would suggest a cardiac event. Again, the patient who has no prodrome has a sudden collapse without any prodrome to suggest a vasovagal or reflex mediated mechanism. That's the kind of patient I think uh, has a high risk of being uh, cardiac in origin and should be admitted for investigation because that patient has a very high one-year mortality.
0: The San Francisco syncope rule has been analyzed and reanalyzed and tried to be validated several times and been written about many, many times in literature. Just to review for our listeners what the San Francisco syncope rule is, they looked at seven-day serious outcome data of over 50 predictor variables. They had almost 700 patients. 12% of those developed serious outcomes within seven days. And they looked at five predictors. One was abnormal ECG, which Dr. Latovsky had mentioned is one of his red flags, Number two was shortness of breath as a complaint. Number three was a hematocrit less than 30, in other words, a significant anemia. Number four was a systolic blood pressure of less than 90 at triage. And number five was a history of CHF, which Dr. Latovsky had also mentioned as one of his red flags. And this produced a sensitivity of 96% and a specificity of 62%. In the original study, the mnemonic that some people use is CHESS, C-H-E-S-S, which is CHF, hematocrit, ECG, shortness of breath, and systolic blood pressure. And in the original study, they suggest that it would lead to about a 10% reduction in admission rates. Uh, when they try to validate it, they, they're unable to. And in fact, in a Canadian study recently, they showed that if you follow the San Francisco syncope rules, that it would increase admission rates without any benefit in mortality. Dr. Latofsky, tell us what you think about the San Francisco P rule. Does it have any use in our daily practice?
1: First of all, I'm not really sure why they call it the San Francisco syncope rules, because it was Canadian researchers who developed the model. Right, Ian Steele and... Kirk and and his fellow researchers. So, you know, just because of that alone, I don't use it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's bias, Dr. (laughs) Latofsky.
1: You've explained that subsequent validation studies have shown less specificity, and less sensitivity for these rules than we had really thought that, that they had delivered. So, in fact, if it's going to make us admit way more patients than they were admitting previously, it kind of destroys the utility of using this as a risk stratification tool. So I personally don't use it. I think it's got significant limitations. In Canada, anyways, it would dramatically increase the number of patients we would admit, and we just, you know, don't have the resources to admit the majority of our syncopal patients. So um, I think it's proven to be a lot less useful as a stratification tool than we originally thought.
0: There's a couple of other things we should know about the San Francisco syncope rules. One is from the Canadian Cardiovascular Society position paper on syncope, They stated that the San Francisco syncope rule is no better than physician judgment in predicting seven-day adverse major non-fatal outcomes. What's also important to know is that if you are going to use the San Francisco syncope rule, it should only be applied to patients in whom no cause of syncope is evident after the initial evaluation in the ED. There's another decision rule called the Rose Rule which stands for risk stratification of syncope in the ED rule from the journal of the American college of cardiology in 2010. And it says that we should admit any patient if they have any of the following and they use the braces mnemonic B is for a BNP level more than 300 B is also for bradycardia less than 50 in the emergency department or in pre-hospital R is for rectal examination showing fecal occult blood, if there's a suspicion of gastrointestinal bleed. A is for anemia with a hemoglobin of less than 90. C is for chest pain associated with syncope. E is for ECG showing Q waves, but not in lead three. And S is for saturation of 94% or less on room air. So this rose rule had a sensitivity of 87% and a specificity of 65% with a negative predictive value of 98.5%. Next, we're going to hear some comments about decision rules for syncope in the ED from Dr. Latovsky and Dr. Jarvis.
2: There is really no rule in pediatrics, partially because there aren't any studies And secondly, because there's such different causes at the different age ranges.
1: Mm -hmm. The the trouble with a decision rule, it, it doesn't allow for the evaluation of the historical nuances. Right. I mean, there's no rule that can be as accurate as Dr. Jarvis's good detailed history there's no rule that can be as accurate or as sensitive as Dr. Jarvis's nuanced history, especially with the family and with the child there in that room, There is no rule that can be as accurate.
0: Yeah. I mean, decision rules in a way they make us lazy. Correct. And you know, if you just go by decision rules, you're, you're going to be thinking less. Mm -hmm. You might miss rare things that the decision rule has absolutely nothing to do with. Exactly.
2: The other thing is that, you must ensure in whatever clinical guideline or decision rule you use that your population is absolutely identical to the population it was developed for.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: That's another important point because the denominator is everything, what's common in your population.
1: Yeah.
0: What we have mentioned before on emergency medicine cases, in terms of the value of decision rules in general, is they're good as a, as a teaching tool and for people just starting out just to be able to identify what some of the high risk factors might be.
1: Correct. And you have to remember that some patients lie outside of decision rules, but you might still refer for admission too because of social reasons. For example, the family, the young uh, single mother who you, young single mother, very young single mother whom you're questioning the reliability of her coming back for an outpatient appointment. Those are the kinds of things that you might take into consideration. The 85-year-old with a sudden syncopal episode who you think may be cardiac, but lives alone. Uh, and even though he doesn't have the other criteria of heart failure, dysrhythmias, or an abnormal ECG, if he lives completely alone, Even though he wouldn't fit admission by a decision rule, you have to consider those social reasons for admission as well. Nobody can ever put that into a decision rule.
0: Absolutely. Up until now, we've really stressed the importance of the history and physical exam and that ancillary tests are often not needed unless there's a clinical suspicion and that going by decision rules may not be such a great way of deciding who should be admitted and who needs further testing. Next, we're going to talk about unique situations not covered by decision rules that might require further investigations and or
1: admission. Uh, There are some unique situations that I think warrant a bit more investigation and perhaps an admission. For example, if there's any shortness of breath or palpitations, you have to always consider the possibility of a pulmonary embolism. So, if you think a patients had a pulmonary embolism as a possible cause, then that patient should be investigated for that. If they have electrolyte disturbances, for example, if they're already if they're hypomagnesemic and hypokalemic, uh, that's the kind of patient you might want to just bring in for a monitoring for twenty four hours because those patients are at risk for a TORSAD. So, there are some unique situations that, even though they fall outside of my four criteria for admission, you might want to think of admitting those patients who come in with exertional syncope. That's the kind of patient who really needs urgent investigations as well.
2: No, in pediatrics, we hardly ever admit anyone after syncope because I stated 77% on the history and physical, you've figured out that this is most likely a benign cause. You're going to send them home. There are categories of people who should be admitted, and there are categories who need a very urgent follow-up. So if someone is possibly pregnant and there's any possibility of a a ectopic, if you suspect that someone has an eating disorder and that is why they have fainted, they are at high risk of sudden death, and they should be in hospital. Anyone I find with uh, grossly abnormal electrolytes. And then when we look at the electrocardiogram and the cardiac causes, which could be up to 6%, if you suspect even remotely that it's myocarditis, that patient should be in hospital because the cardiogram can actually be normal to start with. But if they're evidence of recent viral infection in a Coxsackie season with someone who has been vomiting a lot, you should have them in hospital. So as myocarditis. Anyone with uh, gross changes on the cardiogram which support hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, they should be admitted to hospital. Other people Most of the cardiac things we suspect, long QT, anything else, we put them on a holter monitor and arrange for cardiac follow-up within two weeks. One other category that I really must say, I personally have almost never sent home a child under a year of age with a clear history of complete loss of consciousness. In various series done, infants whose parents say they had a dying spell at home in the first year of life, I personally have seen this turn out to be aortic rings, right? So when the child started solid food, there was compression of the aorta, right? Aberrant subclavian vessels. These are things that are rare hens, but they tend to occur in the very young. I've seen it with pertussis that the child went on to have one of the dying spells and emerge. The child was on the monitor and the heart rate went to 30. That child came in on a ventilator, right? There are these weird things. If in doubt, I would tell you, The child under year is an almost absolute admit in my book.
0: Let's just back up a little bit in terms of risk stratification and the history. In those patients who don't have a full syncopal event, but they describe what you're convinced is presyncope, Do you treat those patients any differently to a patient that has a full syncopal event in terms of their risk, in terms of how worried you are about them?
1: Adults, I don't distinguish between presyncope and syncope. Mm -hmm. I consider it's all a spectrum, and I consider the etiologies for presyncope to be exactly the same as the etiologies for syncope. So I don't particularly distinguish between presyncope and syncope at all.
2: Well, let me say with kids, history and physical, if there is a family history, of those early deaths, drowning, pacemaker going in, or they come from a part of the world where this problem is very common, say the Philippines where there's a lot of periodic potassium problems, right? Then if the presyncope is related to exercise, certain activities, I will do some investigations, Right? as discussed before.
0: Okay. You know, so your patient with pre that you're convinced that it's pre based on your history, mm-hmm. you manage them pretty much the same way as you would yeah, a es- patient with a full syncopal episode.
2: Absolutely. Especially if that pre has to do with exercise.
0: Let's get back to ECGs. Dr. Lutofsky, most of us have heard about Brugada syndrome. Could you just review for us what the most important salient features are of Brigada syndrome, what we need to know about it, and if we do discover it, what we need to do about it?
1: So Brigada syndrome was an entity that was only first described in the the 90s, actually. It's a genetic disorder, actually, and it's the most common cause of sudden, uh, sudden death in the Southeast Asian males, actually. Although having said that, you can get Brugada syndromes in Caucasians. You see, you see Brighettas in African Americans as well. So it's not just Southeast and Asian males, but but it is predominantly Southeast Asian males and in Japan and Philippines and Thailand, and Cambodia. They actually have a name for that. It's called it's sudden death at, occurs at nighttime. Each of those languages has a specific word for Brugada syndrome that's local to their cultures if you get a single episode in someone who's originally from Thailand or Cambodia or from Japan it's really important to ask about family history of similar episodes sudden death in in young members of their family because then you have to consider it what it is on the ECG it's a pattern. There's a couple of different patterns on the ECG, but mostly it's a right bundle branch pattern that you see in V1, V2. And you get a couple of different patterns. Usually you get some SC segment elevation, and that's uh, mountain topped, or you can get like a saddle deformity. So there's a couple of different patterns of the Brugada syndrome, but it all starts off on top of a right bundle branch pattern in V1. And then what happens is that those patients are at risk for ventricular dysrhythmia, such as ventricular tachycardia, which can then precipitate into a ventricular fibrillation and sudden death. It usually occurs at night. If identified, it's critically important to identify because patients who've had presyncopal or syncopal episodes in the background of a Brugetta like cardiogram need to be admitted for an implantable defibrillator, need to be sent to a place that can, can implant a uh, an automatic uh, cardiovered implantable defibrillator. So it's a syndrome that you, you uh, have to look for carefully. Southeast Asian males, uh, syncopal episode, uh, sometimes they just present with palpitations, look carefully at the cardiogram. And uh, if you find it, those patients should be referred to cardiologists.
2: The other item to think of is that in young children, The Brugada syndrome may present during a febrile illness. Now, where you really get in trouble is when uh, it's brushed off as a febrile convulsion, because face it, we don't usually do cardiograms during febrile seizures. My goodness, (laughs) hardly ever. Mm -hmm. So it's down to that history and physical. Right.
0: So patients Mm -hmm. who might be at risk for Brugada syndrome—they have a family history. And a kid presents with a febrile, maybe seizure, maybe syncope. Yes. You should be think of the, think, of, a, think of the cardiogram. Think of the
2: cardiogram. Was it truly a febrile convulsion or was it a syncopolar
0: vein? Let's move on to case three. This will be, again, in the context of talking about ECGs. A 32-year-old man with chronic alcohol abuse who's well-known to your emergency department is brought in by his obviously inebriated friend, who says that they were standing in the park drinking vodka when his friend suddenly passed out. And this was different to any previous times that his friend had ever passed out from drinking a lot in the past. The patient had been making an effort to quit drinking lately and had been going to his family doctor who diagnosed him with hypertension and had just started him on hydrochlorothiazide, 25 milligrams daily, a few days prior. The patient denied feeling dizzy, nauseated, or sweaty prior to the syncopal event, and he had no chest pain, shortness of breath, palpitations, or headache. On exam, his vitals were stable, he appeared mildly intoxicated with a GCS of 14, and the rest of his neurological exam was unremarkable except for a wide-based gait. There was no sign of recent trauma, and his cardiac and respiratory exams were unremarkable. While you're waiting for an ECG and basic blood work to come back, the patient started to vomit. He then ripped out his IV, climbs out of a stretcher, and makes his way toward the exit while screaming obscenities. He's restrained and given five milligrams of Haldol IM and then eight milligrams of ondansetron. About 30 minutes later, he's found to be unresponsive and pulseless. CPR was initiated and the IV was started and an amp of Epi was given. He was hooked up to the monitor, which during the first break in CPR, showed a wide complex tachycardia at about 200 beats per minute with varying heights of the QRS complex. It was identified as TORSAD and the patient was shocked and given two grams of MagSelf IV and was resuscitated. His ECG after he was stabilized showed a corrected QT interval of 520. The blood work came back and showed a potassium of 1.7 as well as a low magnesium. So, Dr. Latovsky what are your thoughts about why this patient had a syncopal episode and cardiac arrest?
1: a oh, delightful case. Saturday, Saturday night. night. Saturday night. <laughs> yeah. A couple of considerations with alcoholics. First of all, they're at risk for seizures as well, alcohol withdrawal seizure, and they're at risk for syncope as well. What you don't want to miss an alcoholic is hypoglycemia. So all alcoholics who come into the emergency department need to have a stat blood sugar. We've said this time and time again during the show about what's one of the cardinal vital signs for all patients with sick B, but particularly with alcoholics. Alcoholics are at risk for hypoglycemia really for two reasons. One is because they're nutritionally deficient. They have poor glycogen stores. And second of all, alcohol itself inhibits gluconeogenesis. So these patients are at risk for hypoglycemic spells. So it's really important. Patients who are alcoholic, they're not feeling well, lethargic, whatever, you need to do a stab blood sugar on them. And if you're going to start an IV in an alcoholic, I emphasize this time and time again with my nurses. If you're going to bother starting an IV in an alcoholic, start an intravenous with something that's got glucose in it. So rather than just normal saline, D5 normal saline is my IV of choice in alcoholic. Absolutely, it's gotta be D5 normal saline as opposed to IV normal saline alone, critical point. And then alcoholics themselves are prone to electrolyte abnormalities. They're prone to hypomagnesemia. There's two type of people who are prone to hypomagnesemia. You tend to see hypomagnesemia in cancer patients and alcoholics. So it's the only time you see a low magnesium level. So alcoholics are prone to hypomagnesemia again poor nutrition and they pee at magnesium. So this gentleman was at risk for hypomagnesemia. He was obviously also at risk because of the hydrochlorothiazide he was at risk for hypokalemia. So he's probably peeing out as who knows what his potassium was. Was he at risk for hypocalcemia as well? Who knows? But at the very least, he was at risk for hypomagnesemia and hypokalemia, both of which will then prolong his QT interval and then you know, be at risk for torsade de point. And in this particular scenario, everything was exacerbated. By the Haldol almost certainly prolonged his QT as well, on top of a probably pre existing prolonged QT interval, and that's what probably triggered his torsad event and, and precipitated the cardiac arrest. And fortunately, he was resuscitated and given the appropriate therapy. But you certainly have to be careful on alcoholics, they're at risk for low glucose and they're at risk for electrolyte abnormalities.
0: All right, so this patient had a prolonged corrected QT interval. Dr. Jarvis, can you review for us what prolonged QT syndrome is? Uh, you know, our, our alcoholic patient here had an acquired cause for, multiple acquired causes for his prolonged QT. The other causes for a prolonged QT are having uh, actual prolonged QT syndrome syndrome. Could you explain to us what prolonged QT syndrome is, how to diagnose it, and how to manage that?
2: Certainly. No, the QT interval varies from birth till uh, early childhood. We get to the level where we say that anything over 0.45 milliseconds is prolonged. And depending on age group, please look at a chart and look at the normals. The prolonged QT syndrome is a genetic defect. They tend to occur in families, and the pattern is repeated. With some families, there is deafness. In others, there is none. How does it present? Well, they are certainly at risk of having a variety of dysrhythmias, sudden death, and syncope. So when you get your cardiogram, this is where errors are made. If you take a young child who's had some kind of event and you just take the reading of the adult oriented ECG machine, you need to do the calculation yourself.
0: In adults, certainly anything over 500 in terms of the QT interval, we worry about. Right. Uh, in I'm children, saying in
2: 450. If it's over 450, there's a problem. Okay. so There's a problem until otherwise ruled out by okay. the cardiologist. Over 450 in
0: kids, over 500 in adults. As yeah. A, yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah.
2: Remember we said at the very beginning, history physical, you're going to really push what happened, where was the child, what was the exact event if a patient is said to react to a medication by fainting because there are so many uh, situations where the long QT is just unmasked when the patient is given a medication. Macrolides are very commonly and extensively used in childhood. And uh, if the family doesn't know and the doctor doesn't know they have long QT, this might be the presentation So again, do not dismiss patients who tell you that they don't feel so good or they get dizzy when they take a medication. That may not be an anaphylactic reaction, but you need to take it seriously. Likewise, we are using a lot of ondansetron for vomiting. It's not that common, but it is a possible side effect. Likewise, for any reason, a child is being put on some of the anticonvulsants, which may prolong QT. You need to get a cardiogram first.
0: So, in terms of acquired causes of prolonged QT, we've talked about how alcoholics uh, are at risk with the low potassium, low magnesium we had mentioned earlier about eating disorders and then there are a whole slew of medications that can prolong your qt some of the more common ones are antipsychotics on which we're using more and more and more of we, we need to be aware of
1: certain anti the one a's quinidine procainamide, class three sodalol amiodarone so various drugs and there's various miscellaneous causes of prolonged qt as well intracerebral catastrophes intracranial catastrophes myocarditis, hypothermia, there are various causes. But the the key is they all produce the long QT on the cardiogram, which is why you must do a cardiogram.
0: We've talked about some of the not-so-rare causes of syncope that you can find on an ECG, like prolonged QT, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. We have been mentioning some of these rare birds. Let's talk a little bit about some more of those that you can find on an ECG. Now, Dr. Litovsky, most of us have heard about prolonged QT syndrome. What about short QT syndrome? What is it, and how should we manage that in the emergency department?
1: Yeah, and most of us don't look for short QT syndromes, but there there has been reported cases of short QT interval being associated with sudden cardiac death as well, dysrhythmias. So I think you have to look at the QT intervals either being short or prolonged. The same way you have to look at PR interval, whether it's short or prolonged too as being abnormal. So the same thing with QT, you look for the interval QT interval. If it's short, those patients are at risk for dysrhythmias as well, sudden cardiac death.
0: Okay, so under about 340, 350? Yeah, well, so it's, 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 it's much lower than so that. So what you
1: want to look for, anything less than 350, you should worry. Anything greater than 500 milliseconds, you should worry with QT interval.
2: So we usually take less than 340, right? As a shortened QT. However, if there is a family history of sudden deaths, we take anything less than
0: 360. So both prolonged QT syndrome and short QT syndrome carry a risk of sudden death. Prolonged QT syndrome usually presents in the first or second decade of life. For the congenital prolonged QT syndrome, some of the pearls are that syncope is often triggered by acute arousal or startle and loud noises like a fire alarm, for example, and these patients can have orthostatic hypotension, so be sure to keep long QT in your differential for patients with an orthostatic drop. In terms of the acquired causes for prolonged QT, remember to look for it in patients who have eating disorders, alcoholics, patients on cardiac drugs like amiodarone, uh, antipsychotics like risperidone, patients who are given ondansetron, as well as patients who are on methadone. And then some of the other causes for prolonged QT are things like carbon monoxide poisoning and intracerebral bleeds. In terms of a rule of thumb for cutoffs, in kids, a prolonged QT that puts you at risk for going into TORSAD would be 450, and in adults, a prolonged QT that would put you at risk for TORSAD would be 500. In terms of short QT syndrome, the numbers that you need to remember are anything less than 340, except you should modify that to anything less than 360 in patients who have a history of sudden death. Next, Dr. Jarvis is going to talk about arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy. The ECG features of ARVC are the following. One, inverted T waves in the right precordial leads, that's V1, V2, and V3. a QRS in V1 of greater than 110 milliseconds. And third, Epsilon waves. These are reproducible low amplitude signals between the end of the QRS complex to the onset of the T wave in the right precordial leads. We'll have an example of these in the written summary. Dr. Jarvis, the other rare bird is arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy, or ARVC. Could you tell us what we need to know about that as emergency docs?
2: Absolutely. If any of you come from Naxos Island in the Aegean Island group, you know all about this because it's very common, (laughs) and it's also well described in Italy. Well, that was the first clue This is a genetically determined uh, condition, and it leads to fibro-fatty changes in uh, the heart. They may know that they have this condition. Uh, If they present looking extra ill with gastroenteritis-type symptoms, please be very aware of their increased susceptibility to People in Naxos Islands have certain physical features and woolly hair, which is out of proportion, different to the rest of the population. In other areas, there are cutaneous manifestations with this. And um, I would just say it is ventricular tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation, which is induced by any emotional or physical stress. The thing is to think about it, particularly if there's the family history. And implantable defibrillators will save their lives.
0: And just to review again, the ECG findings of arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy are three things. One, inverted T waves in the right precordial leads. Two, QRS in V1 of greater than 110 milliseconds. And three, epsilon waves which are reproducible low amplitude signals between the end of the QRS complex to the onset of the T wave in the right precordial leads. So that's ARVC. Next, I'd like to talk about the so-called benign early repolarization. Early repolarization in the right precordial leads occurs in about 5% of the population, is most common in young otherwise healthy people, and has been considered benign. On the ECG, there's J-point elevation, usually with notching, that occurs in the anterior leads. We'll have that in the written summary. However, the same repolarization pattern that's seen in the inferior lateral leads may not be as benign as we once thought, and has been associated with ventricular fibrillation. A study from the New England Journal of Medicine in 2008 called Sudden Cardiac Arrest Associated with Early Repolarization with a few hundred subjects showed that in patients under the age of 60 with early repolarization on their ECG, and they defined it as a J point elevation in at least two of the inferior and lateral leads of more than one millimeter, with these patients, there was a strong association with VFib compared to matched controls. And patients with unexplained VFib and early repolarization who received defibrillators had more episodes of VFib than patients with unexplained VFib who received defibrillators and did not have early repolarization. Another study from the New England Journal of Medicine a year later, in 2009, had a few thousand subjects. It was called Long-Term Outcome Associated with Early Repolarization and Electrocardiography. And it showed that elevation of the J-point in the inferior or lateral leads of greater than 2 millimeters was associated with an increased risk of V-fib and showed a trend toward a higher death rate from cardiac causes. So what does this mean for the average eMERGE doc? If you have a patient with a ventricular arrhythmia or a history of syncope and all other causes have been ruled out, don't disregard an early repolarization pattern in the inferolateral leads. Consider a referral to cardiology as they may need monitoring. More studies need to be done in this area to know if implantable defibrillators in these patients will save lives or not, but beware, benign early repolarization may not be so benign. At this point, I'd like to review all the ECG features of deadly causes of syncope. First, as Dr. Litovski said, it's all in the intervals. So let's go through the intervals. First, the PR interval. If you have a short PR interval, think WPW. If you have a long PR interval, look for AV blocks and conduction delay. How about the QRS interval? Well, if you have a very narrow QRS interval with huge, deep QRX complexes that Amo Matu describes as daggers, think hokum. If there's a wide QRS complex with epsilon waves and flip Ts in the precordial leads, think arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy. And of course, if it's a wide QRS interval, you've got to think about things like VTAC, WPW, and bundle branch blocks. Next is the QT interval. If it's short, less than 340, or less than 360 in someone with a family history of sudden death, then you should think about short QT syndrome. Or if it's long, more than 500 in adults, or more than 450 in kids, then think prolonged QT syndrome and or secondary causes of prolonged QT. In addition, you should always be on the lookout for a brugada pattern. That's a right bundle branch block with ST elevation in the septal leads that either looks like a mountain or a saddle. Finally, look for signs of PE, like RV strain, S1Q3T3, and flip T's in the inferior and anterior leads together. We're going to get back to talking about disposition now and talk about the value of short-stay syncope units, as well as the value of Holter monitoring, echocardiograms, and table tilt testing. But before we do, I just want to review the guidelines out there on who to admit. We had talked previously about the San Francisco syncope rule in terms of helping us establish risk in the patient with syncope, but that it doesn't really help us out much more than physician judgment in terms of who to admit. So, what do the ASAP guidelines say? The ASAP guidelines say that the following patients should be admitted with the strength of the recommendation as a B recommendation first, patients with a history of CHF, second, patients with a history of ventricular arrhythmias, third, Patients with associated symptoms consistent with ACS. Fourth, exam evidence of significant CHF. Fifth, exam evidence of significant valvular disease. And sixth, an abnormal ECG, including ischemia, arrhythmia, bundle branch blocks, and prolonged QTC. Now, these all seem like common sense to me, but nonetheless, they do give us some guidance if we're not sure and just to go over the Rose rule again, that's the risk stratification of syncope in the ED from the Journal of the American College of Cardiology in 2010, they say that we should admit patients if any of the following are present, using the braces mnemonic. B is for BNP level over 300. R is for rectal examination showing fecal occult blood if there's a suspicion for GI bleed. A is anemia with a hemoglobin of less than 90. C is chest pain associated with the syncope. E is ECG showing Q waves, but not in lead three. And S is a saturation of 94% or less on room air. So let's talk a little bit more about disposition. Some patients that you see for syncope in the emergency department, you don't have a definitive diagnosis, but you might be worried about them for whatever reason. There have been some studies that have shown that short-stay syncope units, where they have cardiac telemetry for about six hours, they do hourly vitals and orthostatic blood pressure checks. They might organize an echocardiogram for patients with an abnormal cardiovascular exam or abnormal ECG. There is a study back in 2004 that showed that these short-stay units actually improved diagnostic yield, decreased admission rates, and length of stay, but there was no difference in mortality or syncope recurrence. Some emergency physicians practice with patients who they are unsure of the syncope diagnosis. They'll keep the patient in the emergency room on a cardiac monitor for a few hours, What's your opinion about short-stay units and observing people in the emergency department who present with syncope and you're not sure of the cause?
1: My own personal philosophy about this is that I think that if you've made a decision that you're going to send the patient home, if there's no high-risk features and the patient is safe to go home, there's family there, and you can ensure some kind of proper follow-up, whatever it is, if you've already made a decision that you don't think this is likely to be a cardiac in nature and the patient doesn't need to be admitted, I'm not sure there's much value in just keeping the patient Around for monitoring for three, four, five, six hours after. First of all, you put patients on monitors. They're rarely looked at by the nurses. We're so busy in the emergency department. The nurses don't have time to look at the monitors, number one. Number two, if the initial cardiogram or even a second or third cardiogram in the emergency department doesn't show anything grossly abnormal, the chance of you picking up anything in the emergency department with continuous monitoring for two, three, four hours, are you really going to pick anything up more than what a Holter monitor can pick up? If for 24 hours that you're going to send the patient home on anyways with. So our own particular practice is not to keep the patients for a prolonged period of stay in the emergency department. Now, having said that, I, I will keep some people in the department for an echocardiogram, but that's a different subject. That's for a different test, not for the purpose of observing and monitoring for a period of hours. Some patients, I want a cardiogram before I send them home. If I hear a heart murmur, uh an exertional uh, syncope There's certain scenarios i want a cardiogram before the, i send the patient home an echo yeah an echo cardiogram exactly yeah. but that's a different scenario that's not a prolonged period of observation there you just okay. hold him until you get one specific test before you send the patient home
0: okay so we're, we're touching now on other ancillary tests for mm-hmm. patients with syncope why don't we, we you had mentioned holter monitor let's start with holter monitor mm-hmm. which patients require a holter monitor
1: well, I think if you have a patient who gives you a history of palpitations associated with the syncope, those are the kind of patients where you don't want to delineate the etiology of the palpitations, whether it's just PVCs or whether it's short bouts of SVT or whether it's short bouts of non-sustained ventricular tachycardia, whatever. I think that's the kind of patient who needs outpatient follow-up with a Holter monitor. Even in the absence of palpitations, I think, you know, you're a 60-year-old with new wants at syncopal episodes, absolutely a Holter monitor is warranted because not everybody senses their palpitations. Not everybody senses their short runs of VTAC or SVT even. Not everybody senses arrhythmias. Patients with syncope in whom uh, you're not sure of the etiology, there was nothing precipitating it, you don't think it was a vasovagal, it wasn't situational, but you still think they're safe enough to go home. Absolutely, yeah, those are the kind of patients I'd refer for an, who I think should have an outpatient Holter monitor,
0: even though the yield in the studies is low. very low. Correct, right? I guess it's low, but it one of the reasons low. why those why the yield is so low is because a lot of patients who have vasovagal or Correct. some reflex mediated. Are, 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 lo- sent for are, are, are sent for, for those, those. and so again good. if you do a really good history and physical those patients don't need hold those monitors. patients don't right so, exactly. <laughs> okay so for
1: reduce the denominator the numerator it might get bigger right precisely
2: i don't put holter monitors on younger kids if you've passed out under the age of five and i have any concerns about you you're coming into hospital right? If you're a toddler to five and I am kind of sitting on the fence, I'll arrange an early cardiac assessment for you, but I won't put a halter on because you can't get those small kids to keep them on. A waste of time and a waste of the technology. On the other hand, the ones that I'm going to get a halter on is someone who has fully recovered, does not have long QT syndrome, but who had exercise-induced syncope. Likewise, if I suspect any history of Kawasaki in the past, right, or um, family history that they have had some certain deaths, etc., cetera, uh, even if they weren't exercising, mm-hmm. I want to have an echo. A, an echo. Okay.
0: So that's Holter, and you touched on, on echo there. Yeah. So the patients that you'd get an echo for, Dr. Lutowski also touched on it are patients who you find a new murmur in. Correct. Yes. Uh, patients who you suspect might in kids be a, a missed Kawasaki's. Yes. Exercise-induced syncope.
2: Someone hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or ECHO. And this, I, I like Erica, I might keep them till morning. If I think someone may have myocarditis, because there's too many cases where the early cardiograms were normal, but you might see some dysfunction on the echo. So again, that would be
0: important for me. So Holter monitoring for patients with syncope has a very low yield, only about 1% to 3% that's been shown in the literature. The 2009 European Syncope Guidelines do recommend Holter in patients who have clinical or ECG findings suggesting an arrhythmic syncope, or who have very frequent syncope or presyncope. And what about echo? Well, what are the indications for echo? Some of the indications to think about are a pathologic murmur, history of cardiac disease, or exercise-induced syncope. Dr. Lotofsky is now going to comment on stress testing for patients with syncope. So we've talked about Holter, we've talked about echo. What about treadmill stress testing? And we're not talking about cardiac ischemia here, but which patients with syncope would you consider doing a stress test on?
1: I don't routinely order stress tests on those patients. I arrange for outpatient stress testing of patients with atypical low risk chest pain patients, but not with, generally with patients with syncope. Not with syncope. Maybe I should, but I don't.
0: In, in terms of patients who have exercise-induced syncope, is there a role for for? You know, I think those patients,
1: at that point, I think you're you should be referring those patients to a cardiologist for a full evaluation. I don't think an arrhythmia should be ordering a stress test on patients mm-hmm. with syncope without a you know full cardiac evaluation at that point.
2: Likewise, if someone looks as if they have orthostatic syncope. There's some debate in the literature, but some people think that the tilt table test helps them to distinguish who is just simply a vasovagal versus someone with someone else, something else going on. But I don't send them for the test. I get an opinion and ask the cardiologist, you know, would you see this patient who has fainted repeatedly on standing for short periods of time?
0: So generally speaking, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the tilt table tests and stress tests should be left for the cardiologist. If yes, you, if you absolutely. Have, if you're yes. worried about a patient with syncope, you're sending them to the cardiologist. Yes. And that, that's in, in their domain. The 2009 European guidelines, they do recommend stress testing in patients with syncope if it's related to exertion, exertional syncope, but only after they've had an echocardiogram Correct. done already. Absolutely.
1: Exactly. Because, so at that point know, they're gonna see a cardiologist.
0: Yeah. Because you wouldn't want to send someone with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy for a stress test. Correct. Mm-hmm. Without a previous one. Without a, yeah, a previous echo, because you know, yes. they could drop dead on you in the stress test.
2: Correct. Not done. Oh shift. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> so we've talked about disposition, we've talked about what tests we might want to do. Now you're ready to discharge the patient. Dr. Lotovsky. Do you have a standard discharge spiel that you give patients that you're sending home with syncope?
1: I don't have a standard discharge spiel Uh, for patients. You know, the young folks, the teenagers who come in and they have low blood pressure to begin with and they're thin. You know, I just make sure that they eat well, drink plenty of fluids, avoid alcohol because of the vasodilatation that accompanies alcohol. Uh, for the older folks, I want to make sure that they uh, go home safely with somebody driving them home. Do I tell them to avoid driving? That's an issue that you have to tell with anybody who has a, has had a loss of consciousness. So you need to address the driving issue before they go home. Other than that, uh, you you have to tell them to avoid drugs that can precipitate hypotension and other further syncope episodes. For example. Males who've had single episodes or near single episodes should they avoid uh, drugs like Flomax, you know, alpha blocker agents, for example, which can cause postural hypotension. They have to be careful with diuretics. So I guess it really depends on the scenario, but you know, maintaining good fluids, especially in the summertime, avoiding alcohol, and trying to avoid other drugs that could precipitate uh, hypotension would be really important.
2: Like Eric, I try to individualize my discharge instructions, but there's one thing that I do tell every single family. Uh, that is, they must go and ask those key questions from as many members of the older members of the family as possible. Were there SIDS in the family? Deaths during swimming? early deafness, all those things that might suggest there's an underlying genetic problem. So I want to know about those things. Uh, the family may not know. The next thing is we do, I personally have written a lot of let, uh, letters to coaches, school teams, school principals, because it's just inappropriate for some folk to uh, be going back to contact sports, etc. immediately. They all want to know whether it was just a little faint, should, uh, can't he play in the playoffs tomorrow, right? I like to treat it like a head injury. It's just one syncope, but even if they've never fainted before, why now at 14, especially in a male, what's going on? The next very important things are adequate hydration and appropriate caloric intake. I sometimes suggest to the family, they discuss a referral to a dietitian from their family doctor. Or pediatrician, because there's no doubt that some kids just do not tolerate heavy exercise unless they have preloaded with some calories. Mm -hmm. So those are the kinds of things. And in that two weeks, no exercise, no swimming. You've got to take it seriously. And two weeks, the kid thinks you're a mean dragon, but two weeks out of a young life, out of those activities, off the ski hill, out of the swimming pool, may save their lives.
0: that about wraps it up for this month's episode remember if you're a ccfp or a ccfp em starting in january 2013 each hour that you listen to emergency medicine cases you can claim one m1 credit that you can contribute towards your 25 per year minimum requirement i'm totally psyched for next month when dr walter himmel and dr brian steinhardt are going to come back to emergency medicine cases They're two of my biggest mentors, and we're going to talk about a subject that I've given lectures on multiple times, the subject that most people don't like to hear about, but that has a fascinating differential diagnosis and that we see commonly in the emergency department, and that is low back pain. So until next time, take it easy.